Matthew chapter 23, that is where we are going to begin our study tonight. It's really where we're going to spend most of our time. So if you've got your New Testament with you, be opening up there to Matthew 23. You can place a marker there, your finger, a piece of paper. That's where we're going to be most of the time tonight. It wasn't too terribly long ago I was browsing a website that had a number of different Bible-centered articles on it. And there was one article that caught my attention that I ended up reading through that brought out a concept that I had thought of before, but I hadn't ever really dwelt on. And for the past several months, I've been given the occasion more frequently than I would have liked, uh, to have thought about the title and to, thought, and to think about what the author had to say. The title of his article was That Last Sermon. And he was referencing a gentleman that he had known who had preached his last sermon unbeknownst to him, and then died very quickly thereafter. And in the article, the author offered a lot of considerations to his reader, one of which was, what would you, the article was addressed towards preachers, what would you want your last sermon to be? And I think for most of us who have been preachers before, that, that thought has crossed our minds uh, for one reason or another. But then there, there are times when these sorts of realities kind of slap us in the face and really jar us, grab us by our collars and shake us and uh, make us realize our mortality. The fact that we certainly aren't promised tomorrow. Uh, you think about three facts with me. Number one is that every Christian will attend an assembly for a final time. Every one of us will. Every elder, every pastor will gaze over the flock that has been entrusted to him one last time. And every preacher will preach his last sermon at some point. Brother Leon remembers my grandfather. My grandfather was released from the hospital. He attended services on a Sunday morning, smiling, looking nice. I remember one of my friends telling me, we talked about the little old ladies last night. I remember her telling me he looked so cute that Sunday morning wearing his tie and all all ready for services and just smile on his face, happy to be there. And then, next couple of days during the week, he went for a walk and he had a heart attack after talking with his sister on a walk about heaven. And he died. Didn't know that that Sunday would be his last service. Died before the next service rolled around. He didn't know that was going to be his last one. We didn't know 
That was going to be his last one. No one knew that would be his last one. I think about recently some of my preaching brethren. I think about Danny Dow, who some of you know. Who had a relatively brief but overwhelming illness. And then died rather suddenly. He preached his last sermon there in Sinton, Texas. Danny didn't know that was going to be his last. Think about Tony Mock. Preaching down there in the Houston area. Had a brief but overwhelming bout with cancer. He preached his last sermon at one point. Didn't know that was going to be his last. You got Sam and Becca Starnes in the audience tonight. And Shane Carrington and Brother Leon. All all of them knew Sean Cavender. Knew him well. July the 20th, Sean is preaching in a lectureship and preaches a morning session on the kingdom of God. He's invited out to somebody's house after Bible study that night. He's driving over to their house. He's hit in his car and killed. Four states away from home. He had no clue. None of us knew that was going to be his last sermon. But it was. We had a, a brother. We're, get, we're going somewhere with this, I promise. We're just setting, setting the stage. I was late getting here Saturday because I, I told Brother Leon we had, we'd lost a brother there in San Antonio. And his memorial service was Saturday at 10 o'clock. I don't know that I could envision anyone in this life who led a more difficult life from a more troubled background than Scott, who we memorialized on Saturday. A man who struggled with muscular dystrophy, a a man who who lost his mom uh, when he was about 8 or 10 years old, a man who had been abused in every way you can imagine. A man who for the last several years was fighting a a battle with a failing body. And a week and a half before Scott passed, been on hospice care for I don't know how long. You know what the very last outing Scott made was? He basically had to be carried into the church building for a Sunday morning service. But he wanted to be there. That was one where we didn't know if it was going to be his last service, but we all had a pretty good idea that was probably going to be Scott's last service. Sometimes you have a really good idea. And sometimes you don't. But there's going to come a last time for all of us. And, and as a preacher, you sometimes think, you don't know when the last time is going to be, but if you knew your last time, what, what would your last sermon be about? What would you preach about? If you, if you knew it was your last sermon, if you knew it was your last Bible class, what would you teach on? What would you preach on? Somebody might say, I'd, I'd, I'd reach out and, and share a message, a, a, a message that my family might need. I'd make one last appeal 
to my friends. I'd let my brethren know how much I love them. I'd talk about God's grace, somebody might say. I'd talk about God's mercy. Somebody might say, I'd talk about hell and how I don't want any of you to go there. There's a lot of ways we might answer that question. What I might say in my last sermon, what you might say in your last class, what you might say in your last public prayer, what you might say or do in your last act of shepherding. But you're there with me in Matthew 23, aren't you? We have an account here from Matthew's pen. Interestingly, about the final sermon of Jesus. I think you would agree with me if if there's any sort of pattern for us in this life, it's Jesus. And, And as we go about thinking not only about what a last sermon might look like, but as we just think about what a good sermon in general might look like, the kind of preaching that we need to encourage and we need to demand in our pulpits and in our churches, in our Bible classes, things like that. As we consider that, would you agree with me that Jesus would be a pretty good example for us? What did Jesus say in his last sermon? What I want us to think about for a few moments tonight. Start with me here at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 23. Read with me here the first three verses. Matthew chapter 23, uh, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 3. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair or in the seat of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things... And do not do them. A lot to break down here. Let me submit to you the first thing that that Jesus says in his last sermon is he commends his audience to devote themselves to the Word of God. That may not be immediately apparent to us, but read again verse 1 with me. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair or in the seat of Moses. That's a reference Uh, we might miss simply because we're not steeped in some of the traditions of first century Judaism. But there is some indication that many synagogues had an actual, what they would call, a seat of Moses. And we have some record of this dating to the uh, end of the first century, the beginning of the second century. And this is where Jewish instructors in the law would sit when they were teaching the law. Jewish custom, uh, you you would sit as you would teach and Those who were teaching and instructing out of the law oftentimes would sit in this chair. And at least in some synagogues, this chair was referred to as the seat of Moses. That's why Jesus would say in verse 3, Therefore all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. These were teachers who were instructing out of the law, but then their lives didn't measure up to what they were teaching. Jesus, in in encouraging his audience to hear what came out of the seat of Moses, was encouraging his audience to listen to God's Word. They weren't blessed like we are to be able to have our own copies of God's Word, right? We don't even have to have a book this big. We've got our phones and we can have it right there for ourselves. First century, they didn't have that. Add to it that there were several people who were illiterate and you were wholly dependent upon people reading to you what God's law was. 
And so Jesus encourages his audience to listen to those who were speaking from Moses' seat. Jesus certainly had profound disagreements with many of the scribes and the Pharisees. But one thing we don't see him disagreeing with the scribes and the Pharisees about is the authority of God's Word. They all made an appeal to varying degrees back to the law of Moses, to the Word of God, to the Scriptures that they had. And here as Jesus commends His audience to hear those who had seated themselves in the chair of Moses, Jesus is commending His audience to hear the Word of God, to devote themselves to the hearing and the learning and the practice of the Word of God. Indeed, it was most likely that the scribes and the Pharisees were the few in Jewish society who actually had access to these scrolls of the law of Moses. And therefore, the common Jew, this would probably be you and me in the first century society, were wholly dependent upon the scribes and the Pharisees for instruction out of the law. Um, it's, it's Mark Allen Powell in his article, Do and Keep What Moses Says, who says this, uh, Jesus might not be referring to their role as teachers when he's talking about these men sitting in the seat of Moses, uh, but he might be rather referring to their social position as people who controlled access to the Torah, to the law of Moses. They are the ones who possess copies of the Torah and are able to read them. They are the ones who know and are able to tell others what Moses said. If you were in the first century and just a commoner and you wanted to know what the law of Moses said about any particular issue, you're not walking down to the local Jewish version of, of HEB or Super One or Brookshire's and finding a, a Bible on the magazine rack there. You're finding a scribe, aren't you? Or a Pharisee. You're asking them. That's why people were so shocked at the teaching of Jesus, right? Because he didn't simply recite the law of Moses as the scribes did when he was asked a question. But he then went on to explain it. He taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. That struck people. But what you see Jesus doing here in the first three verses of Matthew 23 is commending people to the Word of God, to the Scriptures that they had at that time. They're Jews living under the law of Moses. Jesus told them to hear that law. And we understand ultimately to understand that law because that law, Romans 10, was what was pointing to Him, to Jesus. And that that law, Galatians chapter 3, would lead them to faith, to justification in Jesus Christ, serving as a schoolmaster. But you catch that at the end of verse 3? It said, listen to them, but don't what? Don't do what they do. We've all seen parents like this before, haven't we? They tell their kids what? Kid gets in trouble. Parents are rightly getting on to them. And kid pops up and says what? Just doing what you did. Wonderful example of this in my life. Right? Uh, confession is good for the soul but bad for the reputation. I am not the most handy person in the world. I've gotten more handy as, as I've gotten my own house and learned some things. But me and an, an outdoor water spigot were going round and round one day. It was leaking. 
and it was not cooperating with me, and, and I was, I was kind of frustrated about it. I was back there working with my flathead screwdriver trying to get that thing to cooperate, and it wouldn't. Now, unbeknownst to me, my daughter, Bree, had snuck in the backyard and was kind of watching me. And had I known she was back there, it definitely would have changed my reaction. But that spigot would not cooperate with me, and you know what I did? I thought about attacking the spigot, but, but I thought better of that. So I took that flathead screwdriver, and in a motion that would have made half of the 1994 Dallas Cowboys pretty happy, I spiked that flathead screwdriver into the yard. I mean, just spiked it like a football. I felt kind of better. Until I see my daughter out of the corner of my eye go to that screwdriver. And in, in, in about as clumsy a way as a three-year-old could do it, she walked over there, picked up that screwdriver, and she threw it back down there too. It's like, oh, goodness, what have I done here? What have I taught? I made sure I didn't do the phrase, well, honey, you, you should do as I say and not as I do. I just had to say, Daddy shouldn't have done that, and he's sorry, and, and we don't throw things. <laughs> and she had to hear that from Dad, and Dad had to eat some major crow on that day. The point being this, we all recognize the, the, the foolishness, the inconsistency of someone who would say, do as I say and not as I do. But that's exactly what Jesus is warning about with these scribes and Pharisees, isn't it? In fact, we would use what word to describe that? They were being hypocrites, and so that's what Jesus starts to warn about. Last sermon. Last sermon. Jesus starts to warn about hypocrisy. Read with me, starting there in verse 4. How were they hypocrites? They tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments, and they love the places of honor at banquets and the chief seats and synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men rabbi. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, and that is Christ. Jesus warned here about hypocrisy and I want you to see something too Jesus warned in specific language about hypocrisy last sermon Jesus gets specific Jesus gets real specific Jesus gets uncomfortably specific and there are absolutely times for general statements and general concepts and our preaching and our teaching. But there also comes a time where we need to be specific, where we need to be clear, where we need to make sure the audience understands what we're saying. You see Jesus doing that here? He warns in specific language about hypocrisy. And he, he pulls out two or three different things that they were doing here. Uh, in, in verse 4, what were they doing? Yeah, they were sitting in Moses' seat, but then they were going beyond what they should have been doing. They bound teachings on people without consideration. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 2 would warn everybody not to add to God's law. But what had these Pharisees done with all of their many hedge laws? They had elevated their traditions to the point 
that in their minds, even in some cases, they superseded what God's law said. They were binding these heavy burdens on men's shoulders and not lifting their finger to move or to help. Jesus talks about them broadening their phylacteries. We all know this because we use the term phylactery every day, don't we? Uh, Phylactery, maybe your Bible has a note there kind of explaining it. These phylacteries... uh, were the frontlets that are described in in Exodus 13 and in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Remember, God's Word was to be as frontlets between between your eyes. Uh, Sometimes you might see pictures of um, very devoted Jewish men who will have, uh, seems like, leather straps going around maybe their head or their arms, and they have little little bitty containers there. And in those containers, bound up in those leather straps, are, are, within those containers are writings from the law of Moses. Writings from the Torah that they would write and, and put on there, put in there. And so you might, you might write down a verse that was near and dear to you. You might write down a passage uh, that was significant to your family, to your tribe. You would put that in there, and it was supposed to be a reminder, Deuteronomy chapter 6 would tell us, a reminder that that we're God's people, a reminder that we're to serve Him, a reminder that we're to follow Him, a reminder about the holy people we're supposed to be. But as folks sometimes do, they kind of took what God intended, and then they ran with it in ways that God didn't intend. So what, what had these folks taken to do, and what had the scribes and Pharisees started to do? They didn't broaden these, made them large. To say what? Look at me. Look at how holy I am. Look at how devoted I am. Look at the size of these frontlets. Look at how much of God's Word is so treasured by me. Jesus doesn't speak a word of condemnation about the frontlets here. But what He is condemning is what? The hypocrisy that was so readily apparent. Men that would claim such adherence and allegiance to the law of God, but yet who in their lives would not live consistently with it. And then you look at the end here, verses 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. They wanted honor without service. They wanted to be called rabbi and father and leader, and they wanted those chief seats at the banquets. Did they want to help anybody? Did they want to serve anybody? No. They wanted those things for themselves, and we saw there in verses 3 and 4, they didn't really care about anybody else. It was about, what can you do for me? We'll put these heavy loads on your shoulders, but don't come asking us to help you. You know, we might do well to make this point for ourselves too. Last sermon. And when we're thinking about the last sermon that we would preach, Gracious, as I think about the last sermon that I would preach, I'm thinking sentimental. I've preached two last sermons. One in Nacogdoches, and I remember I preached it from 1 John chapter 2. And one in Longview, and I remember I preached that about Paul's farewell address. Both of those were, were very meaningful and sentimental to me. 
But as you look at Jesus preaching his last sermon, yes, there's some sentimentality here. But Jesus chose this moment also to be specific. To be uncomfortably, for some, specific. And I just have us think about this for a moment. Am I okay with that kind of preaching and teaching in my life? Am I okay with preaching and teaching that at time is specific, even uncomfortably specific? Not because it's wrong, but because it really hits home to me. And if that thought makes us uncomfortable, if that thought kind of makes us push back, what would we say to Jesus? And are we really following him as closely as we might claim to be? In his last sermon, Jesus warned about hypocrisy and we need to. We need to appreciate that kind of warning. Look at Matthew 23 and verse 23. In this last sermon, not only did he warn about hypocrisy, not only did he commend people to a devotion towards God's Word, but he encouraged faithfulness in big things. Faithfulness in big things. Look at Matthew chapter 23. You're over here in verse 23. With me, woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, Jesus says. For you make tithe of mint and cumin and anise. And you have neglected the way to your matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. What three things are commended to them here? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Things that they had not been doing. Things they had not been excelling at. And Jesus calls on them to focus on that, to do those things. Big things, right? Big ideas, big concepts, big tent ideas. Love and justice and mercy. You need to be involved in these things, Jesus says. Big ideas. We need faithfulness in big things, don't we? We need to appreciate big concepts like love and faithfulness and justice and mercy and grace. Righteousness salvation big concept things we we need to appreciate that but you also notice that here in Matthew 23 and verse 23 Jesus also encourages faithfulness in small things making tithe of what did he say mint and cumin some translations are going to say dill there and anise We've got a spice rack at home. I'm sure you have one in your home. You ever seen dill in that spice rack? Not very big, is it? Uh, You might even have some powdered cumin in there. Not very big, is it? Can you imagine making a tithe, having grown some of that in your your own herb garden? Can you imagine making tithe of that? Be pretty, you have to 
exert some thoughtfulness there, wouldn't you? Take some time. Make sure that you were giving what you were supposed to give, what giving God what was rightfully His. Giving it to Him as a token of your thankfulness for His goodness and His grace. That's what the Pharisees had been doing, isn't it? The picture is them almost scrupulously getting down here and, and, and counting out the, the herbs, counting out the spices, making sure they get the number and the quantity, quality, all of it just right. And they have just neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness. And we would rightly look at that and say, what are you guys doing? You've missed the big picture. And that's true, they have. They had missed the big picture. But look again what Jesus says here in verse 23. You make tithe of mint and cumin and anise, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. He doesn't tell them you should have focused on justice and mercy and faithfulness and forgotten the tithe of mint and cumin and anise. He says what? You should have been doing both. Big things are important. But so are little things. We need to focus on big concepts like grace and salvation and justice and mercy and faith and love. But we need to focus just as surely Jesus says on the small things, maybe the application of those things. Maybe like Sunday morning when we talked about baptism and the role that baptism plays and the significance of baptism in God's overall plan. Maybe it's making sure that we understand grace in its proper context and how one might receive the grace of God. Maybe it's talking about what love looks like in real life. Maybe it's talking about what faithfulness truly is. In this case, faithfulness wasn't simply making the tithe of mint and cumin and anise. It was also embracing these weightier matters, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Really, faithfulness was all of that together, wasn't it? And we've got to do all of them without leaving some undone. Sometimes in our teaching when we're specific and some get uncomfortable, sometimes that's a good thing. Maybe it's identifying something that we've left out, something that we've left undone that we need to do. Justice and mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Faithfulness in big things, faithfulness in small things. Look at verse 29. Uh, Jesus called for honest self-evaluation. He called for his audience to look at themselves in the mirror and to look at themselves in the mirror honestly. <clears throat> Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you were the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up the measure of, guilt, uh, the, measure of the guilt of your fathers. 
You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? That's pretty bold, isn't it? Does that sound like a last sermon to you? Doesn't sound like a goodbye sermon. But maybe it's our perception that needs to be tweaked just a little bit. He called on his audience to look at themselves honestly. You say if we had lived in our father's day, we would not have persecuted the prophets like they did and so they would take these monuments to the prophets and they would make them look real nice. They would adorn them. And these same people were doing what to Jesus? Hours away from putting him to death? It was hypocrisy, wasn't it? They weren't seeing themselves clearly. It didn't seem like they were interested in seeing that clearly. Jesus calls for us to look at ourselves and to see ourselves for who we truly are. This is what James talks about in James chapter 1, looking into that mirror, seeing clearly. Or in Hebrews chapter 4, taking ourselves and measuring ourselves against the standard of God's Word. The Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. And it is a discerner. It is the ruler. It is the yardstick against which we lay down our hearts to see just exactly how we measure up and how God sees us and how God wants us to be. We need to look at ourselves honestly and when God's Word exposes something in our lives that is lacking... We've got to be the kind of people that would respond to that in the way that He would call us to respond to. To respond with repentance. To respond with devotion. To respond with fervency. He called for honest self-evaluation. Look at verse 37. He reminded His audience of His great love. Now here's the sentimentality we're looking for, right? Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. My uncle used to preach from time to time in a little bitty old rock church building in a know-nothing town in Arkansas by the name of Quitman. Quitman, Arkansas. Little old rock church building. And when I was little, every now and then I'd get to go with my uncle. I thought I was pretty hot stuff, getting to ride with him, just me and him going down the back roads, listening to country music and getting to go to church with him and usually getting to stop at McDonald's on the way home. That was always a treat. And I can remember one of those... Little bitty old country churches, no kids. And when little four or five year old me shows up, oh, they just fawned over the little kid. They never had Bible class except for me and my sister were there. And to this day, I will remember one of the, the sisters. I think every time I came, she always taught the same lesson. And it was about this, we talked about geese earlier on Sunday, it was about this Canadian goose. And there were wildfires raging in 
Canada and she wanted to protect her young ones like any good mother would and so she gathered her chicks together under her wings and shielded them from the fire and flame and the breeding wind. And she perished, but she saved her chicks. Kind of a deep lesson for a four-year-old, isn't it? <laughs> I still remember that this day based out of Matthew 23 and 37. Never doubt the good work you're doing as a Bible class teacher. Those lessons stick with you. But the love that Jesus demonstrates here, I would have gathered you together. I would have protected you. I would have nurtured you. I would have saved you. I wanted to, Jesus said. I was willing to. My Father was willing for you to. The Spirit was willing for you to. Everyone was willing except for whom? You were not willing. Jesus reminded His audience of His great love. He wanted to save them. We need to focus on the love of Jesus. How meaningful His love is. We should never lose sight of that. One last thing we see in this last sermon. It's in verse 39. In verse 38, Jesus says, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And then verse 39. For I say to you that from now on you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That passage has always confounded me a little bit. I've always kind of struggled with it. He goes from saying, I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. You were not willing. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. I think I understood that. They had rejected Jesus. They were going to be rejected. They were going to be judged. Verse 39, For I say to you from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I, I, I don't know if, if your Bible does things like this, but does your Bible indicate that verse 39 there is an Old Testament reference? Mine does. Come over here with me to, to Psalm 118. Because Matthew 23 and verse 39 is actually a quotation of Psalm 118 and verse 26. Jesus, like He so often does, references the principles of the teachings of the Old Testament to make His point even clearer. And You read in Psalm 118 and verse 26 just exactly what you read in Matthew 23 and verse 39. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. So what's the, what's the deal here? What's, what's going on? Well, Matthew 23, it's this quotation from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, if you go to the beginning of it, it's a psalm of, it's a psalm of deliverance. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say His loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress I called upon the Lord and the Lord answered me. Psalm of deliverance. Israel here in Psalm 118 was to cry out to a God who loves them and a God who will save them. The Lord, verse 6, is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. 
Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Uh, Look at verse 18. It is a psalm of deliverance, Psalm 118 is. But the distresses in view in Psalm 118, they were a form of chastening from God. Look at at verse uh, verse 18. The Lord has disciplined me severely. But he has not given me over to death. It's not too difficult to place this psalm in a context of, of some of the captivities that Israel suffered. Israel is to cry out to God in her distress for deliverance. She is being distressed because she is being chastened by God. But it is a distress that is ultimately a chastening that is ultimately overtaken by deliverance. That is, she was being punished by God, but there was still what? There was still hope. That's the message here in the 118th Psalm. You have a God who hears, but He is a God who has been chastening them. But the God who hears and the God who chastens is also the God who gives hope. He has not given me over to death. And because of that, look at verse 19, there would be a relationship with God. Open to me the gates of righteousness, I shall enter through them, I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous will enter through it, I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me. And you have become my salvation. And then look at the very next verse. Do you recognize the next verse? Verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. We would call that a messianic prophecy, wouldn't we? We see that applied to Jesus in the New Testament. What do we see here? A God who hears, a God who chastens, a God of hope, and that hope being particularly realized in whom? In Jesus. For the people of God who were troubled, who were chastened, there was still hope in the future, and that hope ultimately rested in Jesus. And then we arrive there the end in verse 26 where we see our quotation from Matthew 23 blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord who was their hope even Matthew 23 even those who had put to death the son of glory God's magnificent grace in Christ was still going to be extended to them Jesus reminds them of his love in verse 37. And he reminded them of the true nature of hope. Last verse of this sermon. There are times we need to be reminded about what makes for a good sermon. It is nice to have speakers who are captivating. It is nice to have speakers who are relatively polished. 
It's nice to have speakers who bring emotion and energy, but do you notice in Matthew 23, Jesus doesn't place His focus any of those places. Now that's not to say that emotionless, vacant, or effortless preaching is excused, because it's not. But notice that Jesus places His emphasis on commending people to God's Word, on warning people in specific terms, on encouraging faithfulness on all levels, on reminding people of God's love, and pointing to the hope that's still available. Is that the kind of preaching that we prize? Is that the kind of preaching we esteem? Is that the kind of preaching we demand in our pulpits? It ought to be. Because that's how Jesus preached. You know what strikes me about Jesus' last sermon? It is so similar to every other sermon Jesus preached in the New Testament. And I think perhaps as we think along the lines of this being a last sermon, perhaps that's what we ought to take away. Is every sermon we preach, every Bible class we teach, every prayer that we pray, Every effort that we make in the Lord's service ought to be with the realization that this might be our last. And if we live in such a way, do you know what we will not have? We're not going to have regrets when we realize that that was the last time. We can rest confidently and with great peace that we have done the duty the Lord set out before us. Every Christian is going to assemble for a final time. Every pastor will gaze over the flock one last time. Every preacher will at some point preach his last sermon. One day, most likely at a time we don't know, we'll attend our last assembly. I'll attend my last assembly. I'll teach my last Bible class, I'll preach my last sermon, and you'll do the same. And since we don't know what it is, what we can do is make sure that every time we serve, we give it our all and we do it like Jesus. And if we do that, then He's pleased with us. How sorrowful it would be, though, if I missed my last assembly simply because I chose to do something different. That kind of rings hollow on a Tuesday night of the gospel meeting when you've got a bunch of other places to be, but you guys chose to be here. How sad if my last teaching didn't expose what was wrong, reveal what is right, and remind people of the great hope that's in Jesus. How sad that was. Let me ask you this, and let me ask myself this, are we making the most of our time? I hope it's not, but tonight might be your last time to assemble. Talked about our good buddy Sean. He didn't know it was his last time, but it was. And we're all thankful, those of us that knew him, for the life that he led because he could die with hope. He could die 
with confidence and we could grieve him in guided, comforted by hope. If you were to pass away tonight, do you have that hope? Have you found in Jesus Christ the grace that God offers? And if you haven't, we help you find that tonight. If you believe in Jesus as the Son of God and you're willing to turn from your sins, would you confess Him as your Savior? Would you unite with Him in the waters of baptism and raise to walk a new life? If you would, we want to help you receive the grace of God and do that tonight. Maybe as a Christian, you look at your life and you're not ready for judgment. You want to change. And you want folks to pray with you and pray for you. We're happy to do that tonight. If we can help you respond to the gospel, would you come while we stand and while we sing? Heart the gentle voice of Jesus, tenderly upon your ear. Sweet his cry of love and pity, call us. Turn and listen, stay and hear. Ye that labor and are heavy laden, lean upon your dear Lord's breast. Ye that labor and are heavy laden, come and I will give you rest. Take his yoke, for he is me. And lowly bear his burden to him turn. He who calleth is the master holy. He will teach if you will learn. Ye that labor and are heavy laden lean upon your dear Lord's breast. Ye that labor and are heavy laden, come and I will give you rest. Then his loving tender voice, so vain, bear his yoke, his burden take. Find the yoke, his hand is on you, laying light and easy for his sake. Ye that labor and are heavy laden, lean upon your dear Lord's breast. Ye that labor and are heavy laden, come and I will give you visiting here with us. We really appreciate your presence here. Uh, tomorrow is the last night of our meeting. Uh, tomorrow at 10 in the morning and then tomorrow at 7 in the evening. If you can and you're in this area, please come back and be with us.